The Way Out Podcast, Episode 9. So it was just this really, you know, painful uh, struggle to try to rationalize. It's funny. The the amount of work rationalizing drinking was, was a a hundred times, it was a hundred times more work than just quitting, you know? (laughs) Not the sanitized version of the story like i used to tell people you know when my my wife was after she passed away i would say i would say you know i did a few things i'm not proud of uh but i did a lot of things i'm proud of and i would usually leave it at that but i mean i did some things that were pretty bad man like when they were you know like i was unfaithful to my wife when she was locked up in a mental institution it's because i was drunk um you know and so i I decided to, to tell people like the actual version of the story because because I thought it would help them, but not, not, it was very specific how I thought it would help them. I thought it would help them. Like I thought it would help somebody who maybe had a spouse or a family member dealing with mental illness or, you know, somebody that was dealing with a, a alcohol abuse issue. But what, what I realized was it was so much more than that. When I started telling the real version of my story, like it, people from all over the world just started telling me their stories that regardless of whether they had anything to do with any of those issues or not, because they, they saw me being authentic and they saw that, God, this guy's telling like the unvarnished truth of his story. There's no way he's going to judge me. How could he? Right. Right. So that creates a place of safety for people to be able to share their stories. And when you create that for people, man, it is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself. And it's one of the greatest gifts you can give humanity. It's just incredible. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes. And following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Jason. And he'll talk about his new project, The Book of Open. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I don't know if you listen to the podcast. It's a little bit about um, what it was like, what happened, what it's mm-hmm. like now. I read. I read uh, some of your story. Uh, I was absolutely one hundred percent engaged from the beginning because, uh, uh, from uh, everything that I know 
so far, and I hope to learn a lot more. Uh, you've got a you've got a beautiful beautiful story of recovery and a story that uh, that needs to be shared. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I was I guess so. Just to quickly go over it, I mean, I was always a uh, binge drinker, teenager, I guess, and um, you know, and I really maintained that for for quite a while. I, I didn't. I mean, I guess it was a problem in certain respects, but it what it didn't really consume my life by any stretch of the imagination i would go long spurts without drinking it's just that whenever i whenever i drank i uh just tended to go overboard and i was I went through a period in my 20s where i did a, <clears throat> a lot of drugs uh, not a lot of drugs but recreational recreational drugs um and uh yeah and then i mean calmed down a bit and then my you know we had kids got, we got married and we had kids and um my wife was struck down with bipolar disorder and uh that really uh, changed everything. I mean, she spent the next six years was, I don't, I don't know if you've ever known anybody with bipolar disorder, but it's it's horrific. And uh, over the next six years, her life just slowly and inexorably fell apart. And uh, from, you know, suicidal sort of depression to uh, the manic episodes where she would, you know, she's a police officer where she ended up in a homeless shelter at one point, uh, got electroshock therapy, spent us into near bankruptcy a bunch of times, like moved out for five months and left me with our infant kids and all that kind of stuff. So, and ultimately she took her own life because it has devastating, you know, it's a mental illness, but it has devastating real life consequences. The choices you make, um, you know, leave a lasting sort of legacy of destruction, I guess you could say. So, um, and I cope with that by, by drinking. And I, I, I cope with it by drinking because I really have this macho, not macho is the right word, but, you know, a stereotypical male way of looking at the world and, and what strength was. And that was logic and, you know, not displaying any emotion. And I, so I had to cope somehow and I wasn't able to reach out uh, because I thought that was weakness. And I thought there was nobody could provide me anything actionable. So anyways, blah, blah, blah ended up drinking started drinking pretty heavily and i drank for 10 years and i quit a couple of years ago because i don't know i just got the pain became worse than the fear of change i guess is really what it boiled down to and i i just had this moment of clarity it sounds corny but at two o'clock in the morning and i haven't touched a drop since and my life is completely different and it's different ways I never could have imagined. And that's really the message I want to share with people. You know, I don't look at myself as a, as a recovering anything. I look at myself as a completely different person. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the Coles notes version. And wanna, you mentioned a couple of things and I wanted to uh, explore some of that. So you grew up and you were in a military family, so you moved around a lot. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, I heard a piece in your story about, you know, the, uh, the idea that, you know, uh, sharing and connecting with people wasn't something that you felt was valuable, uh, or that would, uh, bring any sort of meaningful, uh, value to your life. Uh, so when you're going through these, uh, uh, really epic, uh, this really epic battle and this epic struggle with your, your wife, uh, and the bipolar and I, I, it did have a, um, uh, an ex-wife that had bipolar disorder, so I'm, I'm familiar with it on a oh, okay. on a fairly intimate level, and the parallels between uh, alcoholism uh, 
which I view as a disease, by the way, uh, and, uh, and the mental illness of, of bipolar disorder, there are some parallels because there's a stigma there. Yep. Huge. And people yeah, I mean, look at your behavior and wonder why you're behaving in that way, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, I, to a certain extent, I can understand why there's a, I don't know, why there's, I can I can understand why people judge it because it's, a, you know, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's impossible to understand unless you've, you know, Unless you're will, I guess, well, I mean, if you're willing to listen and learn, I guess it's possible to understand. But, you know, to see somebody, for example, who's depressed and what that actually means, you know, it's really hard to imagine that unless you've lived through it, you know, and seen it, just how horrific the suffering is and how it's not just mental, it's physical. And it's, you know, every day, all day, just that's a really hard thing to for somebody to imagine. So that's one of the things that I try to I try to talk to people about is to to sort of paint that picture, right? So they can, I don't know, get a peek behind the curtain and understand it more. And it's the same thing with like when I talk about my drinking, it's I want people to understand as I've learned why I was doing it, because I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand it till afterwards. I want people to understand why I was doing it and, you know, what what I was running from and what I, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not just that I, that I like the taste of Coors Light. It was, you know, there's <laughs> right. a lot more going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a military, uh, uh, in a military family, moved around a lot. Did that affect your perception of the world and how you operated uh, i imagine that it might have been difficult to form relationships uh, lasting relationships in in childhood and adolescence is that uh, is that accurate um sort of i mean a lot of the times we moved to like it wasn't always we would move to a, a, a new military base but also some of the people that would come from the, like you cross paths with the same people, people sure. a lot. So, I mean, there was, I guess there was some aspect to that. I'm, you know, what I found very difficult was when I moved, when I went to high school, um, because we had moved back from Europe and I moved, like I literally went from a school of, you know, grade one to grade eight was like 120 people or something, five people in my grade eight class to a high school of a thousand kids where I didn't know anybody. And I, wasn't you know in tune with the latest fashions because i lived in europe and you know it's kind of a i don't want to say it was an outcast that's probably a bit too strong a word but it was very hard to adjust and i think that i was very insecure about all that and i kind of i think that insecurity drove a lot of my earlier sort of rebellious and drinking behaviors you know because i once i found a group of people that would sort of take me in or welcome me into the fold uh, I just wanted to fit in with them. And that, those were kind of the behaviors that they did. And I just kind of went along with it, right? Because I didn't, I think I didn't feel like I had any of their option. You know, I, I identify that with that to a, a very large extent. You know, my mom died when I was 11 years old. And mm-hmm. I desperately wanted to fit in and I never really felt like I did. And I felt like I was different. And apart from that was a theme that really persisted through my 20s and 30s to a large extent that I felt like I was apart from and not a part of. 
life and the, the people around me. I didn't really have a tribe, as it yeah. were. And my tribe, when I was in my teenage years, uh, was definitely the party crowd and, yeah. and, and drugs and alcohol. And I loved the way... I love the way that stuff made me feel. I loved being altered because I didn't really like being me uh, most of the time. And so being altered was, uh, was, was much better than the alternative. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that. And I think, you know, for me too, I, I created this, I get, I, I spent, I actually spent time in the military as well. And, um, I think it all kind of contributed, but I really developed that this real persona around, you know, what a what a leader and a man as as I was saying earlier. And I really I really bought into it. You know, like I I spent a lot of my twenties and even thirties as a as kind of a bully. You know, and I I was uh, I told myself I was this person who reveled in conflict, and I was a type A male and blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. Right. And I and I but it was. Like my, it's funny, I guess if my heart knew that that was a lie, you know, but I never let my, it's like, I never let my heart inform my head or vice versa. Right. I never saw myself as a whole person. I saw myself as this, as these buckets of uh, strengths and weaknesses and weaknesses were something that needed to be mitigated uh, and strengths were something that needed to be exploited. And I, I think that's one of the part of the reason I drank too, right. Is that I just didn't, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't living my life i was living i don't know i was living a story that somebody i feel like somebody else wrote for me you know and i just kind of latched onto it because it i I don't know it it was but it was much life was harder than it needed to be that what you just said really resonates with me the more i interview uh, uh, people that have recovered from a drug and alcohol addiction Mm -hmm. the more i understand and for myself personally, that I lived a long time not being the person that I thought I should be or thought I was capable of being and felt like I was very, very far away from that person that I, and it, this sounds corny, that I was destined to be, that, that God would have had me to be, right? Yeah. And yeah. most of the time, that felt unattainable, unachievable, that I would never be who I thought I could be. That person inside (laughs) me was locked away. The key had been long, long lost. And I was this sort of wandering lost soul that would never really uh, realize that person inside of me. And when I recovered, I got that gift of desperation. It sounds like you got a gift of desperation at two o'clock in the morning that said, I can't do this anymore. It's too painful. I can't live like this anymore. And I'm willing to try something different. I'm willing to do something different. That gift of desperation started me on the path. That that ultimate surrender that feels so relieving and and scary and uh, emotional all at the same time was that first step into starting to be able to get well yeah i totally agree i mean well i did kind of the i don't know it was kind of the opposite but i think fundamentally it was the same thing where i used to tell myself that you know i was good enough right so i would take mm-hmm. i when i when my after my wife passed away and i i remarried and we built a new family 
Man, I, I had I used to say I didn't have a hero complex, but I really did because I would say to myself and to anybody that would listen really would was, you know, I'm I raised these kids through hell. I survived the death of my wife. I built right. a new family. I'm right. fit. I've got a good job. Right. Uh, you know, like if I want to drink, like leave me alone. Right. Because on balance, I'm better than most people. Right. That's the that's like like yeah. my like like living up to your capabilities is relative. It's you know like to like it has anything to do with how anybody else is living their life. Right. And I just I mean I think it. I knew that wasn't true, but I, man, I repeated it so many times, but I would do the same thing. That kind of thinking is fatal to your ability to ever be your best. So I would look at people that, you know, were living, you know, doing these things and and building businesses and helping people and living a life of purpose. And I thought I'm not ever going to do that. Right. Because I was drunk every night. I mean, you're not really going to do that when you're half in the bag. I mean, right. um, so it was just this really, you know, painful uh, struggle to try to yeah, rationalize. It's funny. The, the amount of work rationalizing drinking was, was a, a hundred times. It was a hundred times more work than just quitting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt. You just said something that uh, I love living a life of purpose which yeah. I was never able to do when I was in my active alcoholism and addiction, never could live a life of purpose. My life was about me and my oh, ego. Yeah. And as you related so eloquently, trying to convince other people that I am not only a martyr, uh, yep. but if you had the life that I had, if you were me, you would drink too. Yep. How dare you judge me and tell me that I have a problem, that I drink too much? Are you, you know, I would absolutely go uh, to the end of the earth defending and attacking anybody who questioned my my life choices. And in recovery, I have a, 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 sub, a, a much different view of uh, that life of purpose because it's not about me. It's about what I can give, what I can uh, put out into this world instead of what I can take. Oh, man, you know, when you were, when you were just talking, I had goosebumps because that was, I could hear what, what you were saying. I could hear my own voice saying those same words. Like that, that was the exact narrative that I would, uh, well, that I would say to myself and I would say to anybody that would listen. That was amazing. Really, uh, really amazing. And, you know, uh, you, you, you know, uh, and you did do a lot of good things, raising your kids and doing yep. your, and you're doing your deal. So that can't be minimized. But the, the point for me here and the point that you brought up that is just so perfect is that that line of thinking, that, way of viewing myself and the rest of the world in that I, I, I'm, I'm better than I'm, uh, uh, more than that makes me apart from you. That makes me apart from the world. And that separates me from the rest of this world. And for me, my, the God of my understanding, uh, works through other people. And if I am better than you, if I am apart from you, 
then I cannot connect. And connection is how I that that feeds me now today. That oh, connection, yeah. that ability to be able to connect to the world in a meaningful way and be able to learn from people and share with people stories for me and your story uh, brings about a truth that can't be revealed in any other way that can't be told in any other way and i learn from that and i grow from that and i heal from that yeah no you're you're absolutely right and that's that's really been i think my biggest realization or even maybe revelation is that once I stopped drinking, I decided, you know, I, I need to start telling people this story because it's a, I mean, it's a pretty interesting story, obviously, but, but I, I think that telling this story to people and not, not the sanitized version of the story. Like I used to tell people, you know, when my, my wife was, after she passed away, I would say, I would say, you know, I did a few things I'm not proud of, uh, but I did a lot of things I'm proud of. And I would usually leave it at that. But I mean, I did some things that were pretty bad, man. Like when they were, you know, like I was unfaithful to my wife when she was locked up in a mental institution. It's because I was drunk, right. Um, right. you know. And so I, I decided that to tell people like the actual version of the story because but because I thought it would help them, but not, not, it was very specific how I thought it would help them. I thought it would help them. Like I thought it would help somebody who maybe had a spouse or a family member dealing with mental illness or, you know, somebody that was dealing with a, a alcohol abuse issue. But what, what I realized was it was so much more than that. When I started telling the real version of my story, like it, people from all over the world just started telling me their stories that regardless of whether they had anything to do with any of those issues or not, because they, they saw me being authentic and they saw that, God, this guy's telling like the unvarnished truth of his story. There's no way he's going to judge me. How could he? Right. right. So that creates a place of safety for people to be able to share their stories. And when you create that for people, man, it is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself. And it's one of the greatest gifts you can give humanity. It's just incredible. I absolutely 100% agree, and I feel like and people recover in different ways, and I recovered through uh, 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 the rooms of the 12 steps, mm-hmm. and that for me is a place where uh, uh, I can be authentic, and I feel like other people are very authentic in a way that we're not really allowed to be in day-to-day life. Now, I'm <clears> learning <throat> to be uh, and have learned to be more or more authentic throughout my life although i think there's times where i still struggle with that i think by and large my drive to be authentic uh definitely over overarches my drive today to try to put on some sort of like you said a a varnish over Mm -hmm. over the reality and so to that extent let's talk about that let's talk about um uh the story in its uh in its unvarnished uh reality you how, how old were you when you met your wife and um and uh walk me through the story yeah so i was 19 years old and um she was 20 and when we met and then uh, we moved in together we met in the summer it was like this you know we were both in the military and we were 
you know, met for the summer. We were probably had two months together and then we kind of went our separate ways, but we ended up staying in touch and sort of maintaining a long distance relationship. And then, um, and then we moved in together probably a year and a half later. Now she had come from a family that really was stricken with generations of mental health issues, uh, from depression and to suicide. Her mother was schizophrenic. I didn't really understand any of that at the time. I mean, I was a pretty, uh, pretty dumb 19 year old, I would say, or maybe, maybe typical. I was going to say we're all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when we first moved in together, I can remember coming home and, uh, being, you know, the door being locked for, at our in our apartment, wondering why is the door locked? I can hear that she's inside. And, you know, so what ended up happening was I found out at that moment she was bulimic. So she was, had just, uh, binged and she was trying to throw up and she had locked the door. And anyway, so long story short, that's how I found out about that. So at 21 years old, I found myself, you know, on Tuesday nights, uh, sitting outside, a sitting in the lobby of an eating disorder clinic, um, you know, trying to be supportive of, of her. And so there was a history of mental health issues, but honestly, there was a, most of the time was, was great. And I also had this, so I had this life, I had this really defined life plan, right? So I, you know, she became a police officer and I became a, a software developer and I could see a real path up the corporate ladder for myself. So I planned out this whole very typical, you know, suburban life where you, you know, work your way up the corporate ladder, you have two kids, you have a pool, you progressively accumulate more things, um, you know, so to demonstrate, you know, your material success so you can appear appear better than the people that you live around or whatever. And so that whole plan was actually unfolding quite nicely. And um, and what, what happened was, I, again, I was living this kind of persona as this alpha male type dude. And so that really validated that worldview, right? Where I, I was, this is working for me, uh, so I should really keep up with this. And when, when she was struck down with bipolar disorder, so some things had happened over the years. Um, like, you know, she, she would, um, between our daughters being born, um, we went to her friend's house one time and uh, she, was, she tried to make out with our, our best friend's wife. And I, I can remember finding out about it in the morning. And I remember talking to her and saying, you know, if you're capable of this, you're, there's, you're capable of anything. And it's just my, my confidence and, I mean, obviously trust was shattered. And she was devastated. And, but I really, it wasn't, it was, seemed like a one-time thing and I wasn't going to divorce her over it. And also, for me, I just needed to get back to the plan, right? I really wanted to get back to the plan. So we had another kid, another daughter shortly after that. And at that point, after our second daughter was born is when the wheels completely came off and she was just consumed by bipolar disorder. So shortly after that happened, um, her behavior became oh, just, you know, vicious, vicious. Uh, she lost 30% of her body weight because she was surviving on vodka and, and anti-anxiety medication which mm -hmm. I, I don't even i don't even know where she was getting it to be honest with you she was taking a ridiculous amount she was i found this all out afterwards but she was hiding it around the house yeah the children children of family services got involved because of some of the things she had done and you know and so she wasn't allowed to be around the kids unsupervised and she would leave for days on end and just 
you know, always lashing out, like just vicious, vicious rage, spending us into near bankruptcy. We're like spending us, you know, a thousand dollars a day for days and days and days and days on end and weeks on end. And, um, and I'm watching my life just completely fall apart and thinking I'm going crazy myself because, you know, I have this woman that I've been with for probably 13 years at this time, um, you know, who looks like my wife and sounds like my wife and is making me, making me sound like the worst human being on the face of the earth. And, you know, taking something like she would take something with a, a small kernel of truth and just twist it around so much that, you know, I'm thinking, God, I, I'm an asshole, you know, like, yeah. I'm just, yeah, how can my, so anyways, it just, it just progressively got worse and worse. And she ended up moving out for five months. So my perfect life, and so at this time, I'm trying to work. Uh, so my kids, she moves out. My kids go to spend a few months uh, at my parents' place. So my wife is three hours south of me. My kids, who at the time were not even one year old, about one, my younger daughter was one, and my older daughter would have been about two and a half. They're at my parents' place three hours north of me, and I'm sitting in the wintertime in this dark house, empty house, thinking what I don't even know what has happened here and I would just drink myself I would take sleeping pills and just drink myself to sleep every night because it was better than being awake and and thinking about it so it was, that was a devastatingly lonely time and um, that kind of behavior you know then she came home and eventually and then of course being bipolar she she lapsed into it just a crushing depression and she became suicidal and I took her you know she was institutionalized in a locked ward of a psychiatric facility and you know got electroshock therapy and had her short-term memory eliminated and it's just painful man like just to see somebody suffer like that uh was just horrible and um so that kind of cycle continued and we eventually separated in in um 2008 because she i wasn't i didn't want to but she was in a manic episode and and she threw me out of the house basically um so I became a single dad. I mean, I was a sing honestly, I was a single dad pretty much the whole time. Because, In reality, for sure. Yeah. She wasn't able to function. And and then we moved out. I moved into a separate house. And for the next year and a half, I tried to just protect the kids. And, you know, and eventually what happens with, you know, what happened with her, and I think it's pretty common, is so I was saying you make choices where you, that have real life consequences. So she was never going to be able to go back to work as a police officer. She, you know, her friends had, they, I mean, it's not that they had shunned her. It's just that they, they had their own lives to live and they couldn't cope with her and her family. She was never close with. And, you know, I had met somebody new at this time. And so she could see that she, she felt like she was a failure as a mother and, and as a wife and as a friend and as an employee. And, Eventually, she she was left with nothing, and she called me one day shortly before her death, and uh, she's just in abject desperation and asked me to come to her house, and uh, so I went went out there, and I, I walked in. I will never I will never forget this as long as I live. But I walked into her house. She opened the door, and she was a it was just a broken human being, you know, like the. And she fell on her knees. So this, it was actually the most lucid I had seen her in years. Um, but she literally like fell down to her knees and begged me to take her back. Um, 
but I couldn't do that. I mean, I, and I told her, I wanted you, God, I, there's nothing I want more than you to be happy. And I want us to figure out a way to raise these kids together. And, you know, but no, I, I'm not, I'm not coming back. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. And I felt like the, the last flicker of light was sort of extinguished from her eyes at that time. And I tried to get her to go to the hospital. Um, but she wouldn't. And I, you know, from previous experience, I know how unbelievably difficult it is to help somebody that won't, uh, that doesn't want to help themselves. So I had tried to get her taken to the hospital many, many times, you know, and, and the only phrase I ever heard was she's not a danger to herself or others. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to make her go. Um, and so I stayed with her for a while and, and six weeks later she was, she was dead. And, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I just, the, the only, I just drank <laughs> to, to, to cope with it. And, um, you know, so I, I found out at about midnight and I had to sit my kids now. So I found out at midnight and then I spent the next eight hours just staring at the clock thinking, how am I going to tell my kids that their mother's dead? You know, and so we went through that process. I sat them down and, um, you know, my younger daughter, the first thing she said was, was when is she coming back? She had just turned five. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was very painful. And so for me, what I did, though, afterwards was I I really told myself, once the funeral was done, um, we got through that. In my mind, I was done with that phase of my life, right? So uh, time to move on. I, I It was time to build a new family. The pain was over. Let's sure. you know, let's soldier on. I don't want to even think about this anymore. It's consumed, it's consumed my life for six years. I don't even want to think about it anymore. So I moved on. But what I did was, and we, you know, bought a house. I remarried. We, my, my daughters call my, my amazing new wife, mommy, they have for five years now. And it's, it's just wonderful. But I continued to drink every single day. And, and while telling myself, like, as we were talking earlier that, you know, I was good enough and that I was over it and all these things. And my wife started to become more, so she started to evolve as a, she was evolving as a human being. So she was becoming, you know, involved with the community and the kids school and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of things to get involved in herbal medicine and, you know, just starting to think in terms of possibilities and really, really soaring. And it was just beautiful it, it, or it should have been beautiful to watch, except I was stagnant and like mired in quicksand. Right. So because I was drinking every night and I and I had all kinds of shit I needed to work through. So I I was stagnant and I could see this gap growing between us, uh, but it was not you know, and I was fearful about what would happen Would that gap ever get too big to, uh, to bridge, but it wasn't enough to make me stop drinking by any stretch of the imagination because I continued to try to rationalize it away. And then she started to get pretty insistent about my drinking, but not insistent in like a, like a judgmental, you better stop drinking or else. It was more like, you're not even coming close to realize realizing what you're capable of you have so much to offer the world and you're you're ripping them off and you're ripping yourself off in the process right and man i didn't want to hear it but what was the eventually what happened was my rationalizations with her stopped working and she just stopped listening to them and refused to listen to them and i'll tell you that when that happened of Every single thing that has happened in my life, everything with my 
my first wife and our death and having to tell the kids, the thing that was the scariest thing in my entire life was realizing that the stupid, stupid stuff I had been saying was not, that she wasn't listening to it anymore. And that meant that there was a reckoning coming and I didn't know what I was going to choose, <laughs> to be honest with you. And that was absolutely terrifying. But it wasn't terrifying enough to stop drinking. Right. <laughs> so, right. You know, right. so a few weeks after that, I can remember, actually, it's, it's funny. I, I started to have these flashes of clarity, like just very brief. And that was one of them. I can remember sitting in her office um, talking. We were talking and she was, you know, about drinking and trying to rationalize what I was doing. And her, uh, I remember having sort of a, not really an out-of-body experience. That's probably putting more weight on it than it was. But it was like I could hear my voice more objectively than I normally could. So, And I was listening to the things I was saying, and I I thought, oh, my God, what have you become? Like, listen, you are trying to – listen to what you are trying to rationalize. You sound insane. And it was – you know, that was a pretty profound moment, but it wasn't profound enough to get me to stop drinking. Um so then ultimately what happened, the straw, I guess, that brought the camel's back was my wife had taken my older daughter out somewhere for the day. And I was uh, here with my younger daughter. It was August 30th of 2014. And so she was nine at the time. And so it was just this day for the two of us. And I basically watched the clock until the pub around the corner opened up mm-hmm. because I thought she's gone for the day. I'm going to be able to drink without her knowing about it. And. Uh, with, without my wife knowing about it. And we went to the pub, had a few beers, and I went to the liquor store and basically drank the day away. And, um, you know, when I was doing it, I felt horrible, just horrible about what I was doing. And then my wife came home, and, and uh, she was upset, obviously. But um, but my she told me my, da- my daughter said she was disappointed with how the day went. And that was the thing that did it for me so i that was like a just being punched in the stomach and i i finally i guess i allowed myself to feel the shame that i had been running from or denying all that time and i just the pain i don't know man it just washed over me like it was just consuming i went downstairs and i just passed out on the couch or went to bed and woke up at two o'clock in the morning and felt like I was having an anxiety attack, but I, ha- I at the same time I felt this peace and clarity just somehow wash over me, and I was like, "Okay, I think I'm done drinking." Like, and I I went upstairs to my wife, and uh, I woke her up, and I said, "I I know this sounds insane, but I I think I might be done drinking. Like, I really feel different. I've never felt this way before." And she was you know, understandably skeptical because there was no historical basis in which to think what I was saying was going to, like I was going to, you know, live up to what I was saying. But so she said, I, you know, I hope so. And I had rolled over and went back to sleep. And, uh, but yeah, I haven't touched a drop since. And I, my life has been totally different. And what's funny is, is what's happened after that is it's just been like insight after insight after insight. I think the first insight is, all of the fears, one of the reasons I kept drinking, I, you may have done this too, I, I think it's pretty common, is I created all of these fears around quitting drinking, right? So like, 
I don't even know who I am. I don't know if I'm going to be able to socialize. I don't know if my friends aren't going to like me. Why can't I be just friggin' normal and be able to have a few drinks like everybody else? That's I'm going to keep trying to do that. And yeah. Quitting drinking is going to be terrible. And then, right. you know, just a complete scarcity mindset. And and so what I would do is I would create these fears, and they were so I would build them up in my mind so much that drinking, quitting drinking, or continuing to drink was easier than even thinking about quitting. But when I quit, none of those fears came true, not one. And I remember talking to my wife, going, you know, this is like a world-altering realization for me because I'm wondering right now, what other fears am I living my life? That are like what other fears are holding me back that I've just completely made up. <laughs> like this is I'm 41 years old and I'm thinking I have been limiting myself for my whole life. So that's a very profound realization. And I think another one is that I it took about a year of sobriety before I started grieving my wife's death. Mm-hmm. And it just. I never expected that to happen. I I didn't think I had to. I didn't think I was emotional like that. So I, but I started thinking about her more often. I started. I would just break down. Sometimes I started writing about her more often. Um, I rode my one day. She's she's buried about a uh, hundred kilometers from here. So one day last summer, I rode my bike uh, to her grave there and back, and just sat there. And and my my new wife is just so so supportive of all, of all of this. Um, but I realized I was trying, this is, this is why, this is one of the reasons why I was drinking, you know, because I was trying to run from this thing that I, I just need to, it's normal. And I mean, I just need to work through it. And I allowed myself to do that. And I, I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it has a finite end point grieving or, or what, I don't know, but I'm open to whatever happens, you know, just to experience that moment. So I realized that was a part of it. And I I think the last thing I would say is that I realized that I, just like every one of us, experienced the full range of human emotions. So I used to to drink myself into complete... um, Oblivion. Yeah, oblivion, but like... I would, you can't selectively numb emotions, right? So right. I would try to numb sadness, but I was numbing passion and joy at the same right. time. So I was like this flat line. If you look at a heart rate monitor, I was just flat lined. And I looked at it as a strength. You absolutely. Know? That was you the know? goal. That was the goal. That was the idea. Yeah, absolutely. So and then what happened was I, I allowed myself some time and space to start healing. And I, I started feeling these emotions. So I, I can remember talking to my wife going, like, what, I, there's something wrong with me. I, I, I feel terrible and like there's I'm this is the worst I'm having a terrible day and I feel like there's got to be like there's something wrong and she goes you're having a bad day idiot <laughs> yeah. and it's normal you know so I'm like right. so but it felt like weakness it still felt like weakness and sure. I, I've over time I've allowed myself to to be in that space and realize there's there's great lessons to be learned in that space but I also started feeling passion and joy and you know, all these things I'd never let me feel. It's just a much richer and more amazing human experience, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. That's went on a long rant there, but uh, that's, it just, just been incredible. It was a, it was just a joy to be able to take that journey with you in the, in that space where you told that story. And I identified Jason so many times throughout that story. You had this, this early on idea that I got to keep it all together. And I got to keep this perfect conception of 
of who I am and who I'm supposed to be together. And it's unraveling before your eyes and before your uh, and before your children's eyes. I'm dealing with this. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't have the tools to deal with it. The only thing I know is to drink because that's the only thing that I knew in my life as well that made things bearable, that made things okay. It was my only coping tool. That was my eject button, baby. You know, when things got too much, when there was an emotion that I didn't know how to deal with, when there was a situation or a circumstance that I didn't know how to cope with, I drank. And it didn't make it better, but I could get through. I could numb it to the extent that I could, uh, I, I could uh, again, get into that place where I, I flat my, lined myself so I didn't feel like I was going to go completely and utterly insane. You talked about fear. That's a huge thing that I understand today so differently than I understood it before. Fear was something that I didn't even want to engage with. That was something that I needed to lock away and that I needed to keep contained and make sure nobody else really knew that I was afraid of just about everything Mm -hmm. in life. Uh, I was afraid of my own emotions for sure. Those those times where the, the emotions started to bubble up and I didn't even know what they were because for 20 plus years I had been numbing those emotions and hitting the eject button on them. So I didn't even know how to identify emotions. So when I just felt something weird coming up in my chest and I didn't like it, I don't like this thing. What is this emotion? I'm going to squelch it back down and squelch it back down. And you talked about that moment where you drank the day away and your your daughter gave you that realization that... Um, uh, that was like a punch in the gut. You know, they, yeah. it, it took me right back to the moment right before I drank for the last time. And it was on my son's birthday. And he was 12 at the time. And I was married uh, at the time. And I got drunk. And I didn't mean to get drunk, but I got drunk. Mm-hmm. And... I told myself like I had told myself a thousand times before that I was only going to have a couple. Oh, yeah. You know? I'm just going to have a couple. I'm just, I just need a little bit of a buzz and life will be good. I couldn't stop. And my wife at the time looked at me, my ex-wife, and she said, what's wrong with you? And my son looked at her and looked at me and says, it's dad, he's just drunk again. Oh. You know, on his birthday. And I couldn't even, you know, I, I can't even, I can't, I can't describe the emotion and the utter defeat that I felt that it just, it just felt like a complete and utter piece of shit. That's just all there is yeah. to it. And I went to treatment uh, by uh, the uh, 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 persuasion of my now ex-wife and uh uh, I cried like a baby. I didn't think I would ever get to that place where I'd be able to actually admit that I had a problem in that uh, I was an alcoholic, but I did. And I cried like a baby in that, in that counselor's office. 
and it felt so great and so terrible all at the same time. And she looked at she, she looked at me and she said, well, "What do you want to get out of this?" And I said, "I want to know why. I want to know why I'm like this. I want to know why." And she <laughs> looks at me and she says, "Well, Charlie, let's say you figure out why. Let's say you figure out it's because you're." predisposed to be an addict and an alcoholic let's say it's because your mom died when you were 11 and it and it it hit a switch in your brain do you think you'll ever be able to drink normally again no okay do you think you'll ever be able to use drugs recreationally again no should we focus on how rather than why how we get better how we recover and that was this huge sort of i had been focusing on the why all my life why 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 am i like this why can't i just be like normal people why 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 it doesn't matter yeah it's the wrong question and that was amazing to me now i like acronyms and you talked about fear and uh, an acronym for fear is um fuck everything and run yeah which was what i did for many many years but it also can mean face everything and recover and it sounds like that's what you're doing today. Yeah, uh, you know, it is. And I, it's, I, I look back at that time and, and that man that I was, and I, I just, I, I'm not the same person, you know. And it, it's funny when I think about, I don't, I, it's, amazing how rarely I ever even think about drinking. I, I think about drinking in the, in the con, like in the context of being ecstatic that I don't, yes, um, yes. but I, I don't think back too often about the things that I did um, other than maybe to, you know, glean the lessons from them. Like, for example, I'm actually glad it all happened because I wouldn't be the person I am today uh, without it. And, you know, I've, I think through adversity and through uh, struggle and through overcoming that struggle, you know, it kind of forges a different understanding of the world. And I, I think that's my understanding is much deeper than it would have been if I, my life had been nothing but smooth sailing. But I'm able to talk to my kids now, you know, where I got the lesson from my parents and it was all they knew how to say. It's, it's not a criticism of them by any stretch of the imagination, but they didn't really drink growing up. My dad was dirt poor and my my mom was just kind of led a pretty sheltered life, I guess you could say. So they didn't they didn't drink or really do anything that of the things that I was doing when I was a teenager. So their message was don't drink, you know, or else terrible things will happen. Like basically, that's something a teenagers can't relate to. Um, just say no. Yeah, basically the just say no thing. Well, so you just say yes once and you realize, God, that was pretty awesome. That was amazing. Why have I been saying no this whole time? And what else should I say yes? Exactly. That's ridiculous. They've been lying to me this whole time because they said it was going to be terrible, Jason. And it's amazing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so I I think that was part of, I mean, obviously part of of maybe why I, I chose that path. But what I'm able to say to my kids is like, you're going to make your own choices, right? I mean, you're you're human beings and you have the power of choice. And the older you get, the more expansive or the, the range of options you have to make choices. But I want to talk to you, you know, I want to talk to you about drinking because I just want to tell you what happened to me, right? Like I want to say, I want you to know that here's why I drank. You know, I was trying to 
uh, run from, I was trying to cope with mummy's illness and I was trying to not grieve her death and try to, you know, drink away the sadness and, but it doesn't work. It didn't work for me. And here's, here's how I felt about myself when I did some of the things that I did. And let me, you know, I want you to really understand what that feels like because it's an awful, awful feeling and I don't want you to have to feel it. And here's what my life has been like since I stopped drinking, you know, and it all started with, you know, me getting drunk just a little bit older than you are right now um, for reasons that I didn't really understand at the time. So, again, you're going to make your own choices, but here's, you know, here's the, here's what happened to me. So, and it's, it's a much deeper and more interactive and more authentic conversation to have with your kids where I don't see that being an issue for them at all. Who knows what will happen? I mean, anything can happen, but I really feel like, you know, through the conversations that we've had about that period in, in my life and our lives, that they, they've got a much better set of tools to be able to deal with peer pressure because that's part of it too, right? Is I'm, Absolutely. I don't want them to be insecure. I want them to have uh, strong values and, but not, not just for the sake of having strong, to understand why, to understand what, you know, a strong moral compass and the idea of being of service to others and being, treating each other with kindness, the impact that that can create in the world and their power to make the choices to leave a lasting legacy and their power to make choices um, to dictate the trajectory of their life. Like they own that. And so when you encompass all of that into the message, it's not really just about drinking, right? It's about all of that. And when you, you give them a holistic message and a clear picture of the future that they can create from themselves, they're much less, uh, going to be much less prone to screw it up because they know that they own it. Right. So I never would have learned those lessons if I hadn't been through the things that I'd been through. So I'm grateful. And that's what, that's one of the, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm running from the past. I feel like I'm, I'm using everything that I've learned from it to try to help people create a different future for themselves. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's amazing because that's the gift that I've been given as a part of uh, my journey today as uh, a person in recovery. And, a, and I view myself as recovered. I'm recovered from drugs and alcohol. That's just yeah. that, that I, 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 review, I view myself as a recovered person. And now I'm on a journey of life and experiencing those full that full range of emotions in a real and authentic way. It it's not always great. I have bad days, just like everybody else does, yeah. and I get to feel those bad days, and I get to ride those all the way through, and not medicate those, and I get to learn from them, and I get to share that experience, strength, and hope with people and being of service. I understand my uh, the purpose of my life to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and uh, my fellow man and my fellow mm -hmm. human being. I understand that to be my purpose. It's as simple as that. And I grabbed onto that very, very early in my sobriety. It's never failed to yield rewards mm -hmm. beyond my original comprehension. All I knew in the beginning is that I needed to do something different desperately. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And, you know, I think too, what, what's, I, I like to talk to people about, you know, related to sobriety and recovery is I call it the divergence theory of, uh, of sobriety. And it's, what it means is 
you know, the, the more time that passes, the more my trajectory diverges from the one I was on. Right. And, and so the more time that passes, the, the I don't want to say, I'm going to say worse, but I don't mean worse in a way with judgment. I mean, but the worse I look back, when I look back at my drinking, I look at it as worse and worse as time, as time moves forward, you know, because I realized that if I was still drinking, none of these things I would be doing right. I wouldn't be doing any of them right now. And I feel like I'm going to be doing more expansive and more helping more people and expanding my platform more tomorrow than I did today. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exciting. And that's really amazing. And that, that, that fills you and with a joy and an exuberance for being part of the collective experience that we have as human beings sharing how we have uh, recovered from whatever it is that we've recovered from. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's mental, mental illness, maybe it's an eating disorder, whatever it is that we've had to overcome and by whatever means we've been able to overcome it there's 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 more than one way to recover from drugs and alcohol addiction there's more than one way to recover from a traumatic experience there's more than one way to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder from bipolar whatever it is in the 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 miracle is in sharing how we got better absolutely my man that is beautifully put and i could not agree more i mean you know i think i think one last thing i wanted to mention too was what's one of the things that is so impactful and that leaves a lasting legacy of of recovering from something or you know say let's say achieving a, a goal or overcoming an obstacle that you told yourself a million times that you would never ever be able to overcome. When you do, when you are able to do that, it absolutely expands your horizon to what you see as being possible. So when I was drinking, and I thought, okay, tomorrow that's it. I'm going to quit drinking, you know, and I tried this a million times. Tomorrow I'm going to quit drinking. I could not see past tomorrow. There's no, I just, I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the insight. I didn't know how to think in terms of abundance. I couldn't visualize a different future. But now that I've overcome it and I've started to see that, you know, fear is an invention of my own mind. There's a difference between fear and danger um, that I can achieve goals and I am helping people and I am building up the tools. I am uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where I live. That's where I spend a lot of my life right now. Those things. I can look to the future much further into the future right now and I can visualize, you know, a future of abundance and service and become even more passionate about working my way towards towards it, you know, and I'm not I don't fill up the space between now and the future with obstacles and roadblocks and limitations. I don't do that anymore. So that's for me as a as a human being, as a man and a father. That's one of the greatest gifts that making the choice to become sober has given me. And it's going to pay dividends for the rest of my life. I couldn't have said it any better myself. I want to dedicate the last few minutes of this podcast to uh, the Book of Open. Tell me about that. I'm excited to be able to share it with our community. And I want, uh, I want you to, uh, um, I want you to uh, share it with us. Thank you. Yeah. So what I what I did was I realized that, wow, you know, 
now that I'm sharing my story and it's creating this impact in the world, I want to give other people a platform to share their stories. And I want to, I want, to, I know how daunting that can be sometimes. So I want to lower the, remove some of the obstacles from people sharing their stories. So I created the book of open and really what it is, it's a collection of some incredibly authentic, real stories that people have finally decided to share often for the first time. And what I do is I help talk them through, um, you know, finding the courage to share their story because many people aren't ready or they're close to being ready, but they just need somebody to be able to listen and talk them through it. And then I help them, you know, a lot of people say they're not writers. Well, I mean, to be a writer, you just need to write. But I help them edit their stories and make them flow nicely. So that's something that they, when they put out to the world, they feel proud about. And then I host it for them. You don't have to host a blog. You don't have to do anything. You know, you just really need to barf it out, find the courage, barf it out, and I'll, we'll work together to make it something beautiful and, and put it, you know, in a place where it looks nice and it has nice imagery and it can be there and leave a lasting impact for people. And what I'm doing now, actually, so that's, that's really a passion project of mine. It's just, uh, I, it feels like a, such a great gift of service, but as a result of that, and this is one of those, you know, these amazing, uh, testimonials or a proof that the more you give, the more you receive is that I, through that process, I had somebody come across a site who, um, is an author and who has published eight books and has been on Oprah and he helped me get a, a book deal. Um, so I just actually, the manuscript is complete now. It's going to be released in October and it's called, I wrote, I wrote a book, something I never, ever thought would be, I would be capable of doing. And it's called the deadly book of open, how cultivating vulnerability makes you a stronger, wiser, and more courageous father. And in that, I talk about a lot of the things that we've talked about today and, and the lessons I've learned and how that has impacted me as a parent and as a father. And I want men to understand that we don't have to conform to those ridiculous, limiting, crippling stereotypes that, of what it means to be a man and father, that we are all unique, beautiful, amazing human beings, and that when we lay down our shield and and be authentic we will become invincible so that book will be released in the fall and and then just finally one last thing it's very exciting is that the book publisher motivational press wants to publish a compilation book of stories from the book of open so take this to take the stories and to put them in a beautiful format and you know maybe some commentary and um, really just give people another channel to get their message out. So I'm just so, I'm starting to work on that next week, actually. So I'm so excited. So I would encourage anybody in your community, um, if they have an incredible story to tell, and I'm sure many of them do, and I'm, I'm including you too here, brother, um, you know, I'm looking for contributions. And what a gift to give to yourself and to the world and to your kids to say, this is the kind of man and father I am. And it doesn't have to be specifically around fatherhood, but to be able to say, look, this is... I'm an authentic human being and I found the courage to share my story. And, and here's a tangible example of, you know, what that looks like. So I'm really, really excited for that to, to come out. So I'm starting to work on that next week. So those are the main things I have going on right now. I'm excited with you. I think that's amazing. And that's all a byproduct of you being able to, you know, sort of conquer those demons and yeah. start to recover and just do the next right thing and try to be of maximum service. And you're finding that inner drive and that inner passion that allows you to be able to uh, bring yourself into the world. And by virtue of you bringing your authentic, true, beautiful, amazing self to this world, you're able to uh, uh, help other people 
and um, you know bring bring a a a, a, a much needed voice in into the recovery community, but to the community at large. And I, and, and God bless you for that. I would love to share my story. We're going to, uh, uh, be, uh, promoting your, your book of open, uh, on our website, um, and on our community, because I think it's a great message. It's a message that, uh, uh, I identify with, a hundred percent, vulnerability really is the key to strength surrender, is the key to true power those paradoxes that we find as we begin to discover our true and authentic selves by virtue of uh of recovery uh is amazing uh and uh, uh and uh, i want that uh, i want to be a part of that with you thank you i really really appreciate that jason i appreciate the time i'm going to ask you one last uh and two last questions as we end the podcast here, because uh, um, uh, I've uh, uh, discovered that asking questions is the key to me understanding everything. So uh, the, the thing you are most grateful for today is? My family. Absolutely. Without a doubt, my family. Right now, you're working on what part of your recovery journey? What part of my recovery journey? I think, you know, helping, being of service to other people and, and teaching them the power of sobriety uh, and recovery drives it home to me. Uh, it's probably the best protection I can ever have about ever having a relapse. So, The last thing that I heard from somebody that I uh, either... Uh, have spoken with, engaged with, and it changed my life. I heard what, and it changed my life. I just heard it this morning, and it really had a powerful impact on me, and it was the fact that there is safety and community, and that being vulnerable is the best way to create a sense of community. I love it. I want to thank Jason for sharing his beautiful story and his project, The Book of Open. If you want to reach out to Jason, please contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.